0: country song. It's it's something I am loathe to do, but that was indeed When Michael Calls by Sammy Smith. It's from the 2011 album, Help Me Make It Through the Night, available on Apple Music. And that sounds like a country album, doesn't it? Help me make it through the night. I think that's a country song, actually, believe it or not. Welcome, everybody, to the Classic Horrors Club podcast. This is episode 47. I'm Jeff Owens from the Club, And I'm
1: Richard Chamberlain from Kansas City Cinephile, kccinephile.com, and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com.
0: Why, country or any other genre, did I play a song called When Michael Calls? Can you explain, please, sir? Well,
1: in this episode, we're going to get in that Wayback Machine, but we're not going to go back to the drive-in we are going to be enjoying some uh, made-for-television films. We're going to go back to the days of the fall season premieres and uh, when the big networks made some uh, some pretty good films. Uh, some maybe not so good, but a, a few good uh, flicks to talk about this week, and One
0: Michael Calls is going to be the first one. So we'll get to that shortly, but let's take care of some old business. We have a couple of new members to welcome on the Classic Horrors Club Facebook group page. Welcome to Tammy Knuckles and Jerry Redemacher.
1: Yes, welcome to the uh, welcome to the club. Welcome to the gang. Uh, we've had some good conversation happening over at Facebook in the last month. Of course, we've always got some some good posts. That's the place to go for anything uh, new that that Jeff or I put out, we always throw up links there as well, unless it has to do with Stan and Ollie. You won't find that popping up on the Classic Horrors Club, but anything horror or sci-fi related, we will uh, throw up a link up there so you can go to our respective sites.
0: Yes, and I've said it before, I'll say it again with Joe's post, this is becoming a a resource for me of news of what's happening in, in the world of classic horror. He is fantastic about posting things, it's becoming detrimental to my wallet potentially because of all the cool things that he's posting, but I do appreciate it. And and it's an open forum for everyone to give feedback and to just share exciting news in the world of classic horror. And I think it was Joe, wasn't it? That shared the link that
1: Killdozer is coming to Blu-ray of all things. (laughs) I mean, that's the crazy thing. Some of these made for TV movies, You have to jump through hoops to find or just be satisfied with a old VHS dub on YouTube. And then something like Killdozer or Don't Be Afraid of the Dark is another one that gets a Blu-ray release. We live in in strange, mysterious times, but cool times when we can have something like Killdozer in a good copy, high def, on Blu-ray. Who would have thought?
0: Well, this is the time in our show we usually do feedback and we're going to do a little bit differently. We do have some great comments from Steve Sullivan and we'll spread those throughout the show. But this is not exactly feedback, but sort of an announcement or a reminder. You all are probably aware of this. It's kind of hard to avoid it. But let's, let's let Steve kind of say what's going on and then we've got a kind of a special thing to play. And we'll count that as this week's feedback. So, uh, Mr. Sullivan, take it away. This is Steve Checking in. Uh, it's been a really busy week because Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors
1: is uh, coming out. By the time everyone hears this, it will be available on Amazon in print and ebook form. So everybody should check that out. And I've also got it up as a role playing game supplement, which is an actual game, not the book, on Drive Through RPG. So check that out. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of
0: Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game.
1: This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies psychic twins scheming madmen have plenty of unexpected chills.
0: Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com.
1: I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember the Chamber is always waiting
0: for its next victim. Thanks, Stephen. And I have to say that, you know, I am a patron of yours, and you, you posted chapters previously for your patrons, and I did not read them. I wanted to wait till everything was together in one book. I cannot wait to receive that. So I'm glad that time is finally here. Beautiful cover by Mark Maddox. So congratulations on your new effort. Yeah, I'm the same way. I, I always
1: prefer to read on, on dead trees. Uh, I guess I'm old school that way I think like, like you I know although you do read some stuff online. I, I, I have a harder time doing that. I uh, so glad this is finally getting into print. been a while. that was a long journey to get to this one and yeah, Mark Maddox on the cover. that's worth the price alone. Uh, congratulations, Steve and I know uh, the timing is right getting this out just in time for the fall season. Hopefully it's going to be a huge seller. I know he's had some good response already on Amazon. Uh, spreading the word. I know I posted the cover reveal over at uh, KC Cinephile uh, in the past week. He's got a cool YouTube video out there. I've linked up to that on uh, on my page. Gives you a little bit of more
0: info about it. And yeah, congratulations. Thanks for calling in, Steve, and letting us know. Steve was able to call in because we have a Classic Horrors Club hotline, if you will, and it 616-649-649. Two five eight two that is so easily to remember six one six six four nine. Club. Oh my I had to do that in Steve Sullivan's voice, right? Yeah. The classic five was was in I my head. I wasn't ready for that. It's a little <laughs> early, but thank you. Yes. So please call in or, or send us a, an email. Classic at gmail.com, Facebook group page, all kinds of ways to get a hold of us and we would include any of your comments or feedback or just conversation that you'd like to be included, because this is a club. We would like participation from a lot of people, old business out of the way. Let's get into the meat of our show. Like Richard said, we're going back in time where we are in the early seventies. Richard paint a picture for us. What, what was it like in the early seventies just in general? They were dark and mysterious <laughs> times. No, that's 2020. You know, Television viewing was
1: vastly different, obviously. Those of us who grew up in that era would remember, and I think fondly, if you're a little younger, you, you might not remember those days where in the early 70s, there was still a lot of people who just had a black and white television set. There were no big screen, 4K, high definition television viewing back then. There was a lot of people that had black and white. We didn't get our first color TV until... Seventy three, seventy four. I remember we got it before we added the room in the back of our house, which was in 75. And I remember the first thing that was on television was an episode of Emergency, and there was a fire. And all of us were in the living room as the technician was fine-tuning the television. An RCA console TV from Marshall's Furniture in Newton, Kansas, and they're still there, actually. I, I'm going to assume... Based on the fact that we had a really nice console TV, that it probably cost what a standard 21-inch console color TV cost in 1974, which is $500. That is $3,300 in today's money. That's why a lot of people were still dealing with black and white because color TVs. You could get a small portable one for cheaper, but if you wanted one of those nice piece of furniture in your living room, that was, that was a, an investment. Uh, and not everyone could, could afford that. My mom and dad had that console color TV until 1988, I believe. And they bought a new console color TV, which was kind of outdated by that point. And there's thunder in the background. So nice ambiance as we okay. dive into our films. They had their second console color TV until the late 1990s. Just was like not even 25 years ago. They were built to last assuredly. And a lot of people still have black and white was because, for example, August 26th, 1972, that was the first week that TV Guide quit putting the letter C by programs to designate that they were in color. They made the switch that week and they began using BW for black and white because by that point... Obviously, by, I think, American television, the late 60s is when everything finally, mid to late 60s is when everything finally switched over. But there were enough shows by 1972 that they needed to, to flip it and uh, save a little ink along the way. If you watched a theatrical movie on TV, it was pan and scan. There was no widescreen viewing. You didn't get the full picture. Sometimes it, it was good. Sometimes... It was bad. I remember watching theatrical movies on TV back then. And remember how they used to like, in order to get all the the opening titles on the screen, they kind of sometimes had to squeeze the picture. And if there were background people, they would be like really tall and skinny. I'm not nostalgic for those days. I appreciate being able to watch films as they were originally meant to be seen. And there was no cable TV in the early seventies. If you had cable it was because you lived in a rural area and the cable companies back then, they, they only offered like other television stations from nearby areas, basically giving you like a giant antenna, essentially. Most people had an average of four to five channels. You had your ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS, and maybe a UHF station if you were lucky. I know that growing up just north of Wichita, Wichita didn't get its first UHF station until 1985. Until we got cable TV, which was in 1978, there was no UHF station. So my world was vastly limited. But in 78, we got cable TV and we got Channel 41 out of uh, Kansas City. We got Channel 17 out of Atlanta. We also got Channel 13, a CBS affiliate out of Topeka, and that opened my world to so many more programs that the only, you know, again, we only had to four. And that is if you count PBS, which didn't always have the coolest stuff on there. But what about you? I mean, you up in, in uh,
0: Oklahoma. How many TV stations did you have? Yeah, you know, I don't remember the black and white color thing. I mean, I just remember my earliest memories of watching TV were actually in the, in the 60s. I mean, as I was a Young, young, young child. Uh, I remember watching Batman sixty six. Of course, I've told stories about watching Dark Shadows when I was a kid. And then I remember, you know, like on Friday night, having to get home to watch the Brady Bunch. That'd be later in the seventies. But I don't remember color, black and white, or anything. Uh, But I know a lot of these movies we're going to talk about, I saw during their original runs. So it, it it wouldn't have been on cable. It would have been on the three networks. I mean. It's hard to imagine these days, but the three networks were it. You didn't yeah. have a million choices. And no,
1: they they ended their broadcast day usually around one o'clock at night. UHF stations would usually go twenty four seven, maybe, and up until nineteen seventy eight, TV pretty much ended about one o'clock. Occasionally, I know ABC, our channel ten K A K E out of Wichita, they would sometimes go into the later hours, might might do a late, late movie, but there was no 24-7 back then. I mean, there was the sign-off and sign-on, and I remember waking up Saturday mornings. If I woke up early, especially on Sunday mornings, I would stare at the little Indian image, right, that was that classic, because the station hadn't signed on yet. They wouldn't sign on until 7 a.m., when they would play Davy and Goliath on Sunday mornings and uh, Uncle Bill reads the funnies, which was a guy and a puppet named Zippy reading the Sunday morning funnies. I have looked for a clip for that on, on YouTube and it doesn't exist. Uh, Those episodes are lost to time. There was nothing on before
0: 7am on a Sunday morning. Wouldn't even be called appointment TV back then. But if you didn't see it when it was on, you know, you, you didn't see it. And I can remember many times being out and knowing we got to get home because I want to watch, you know, whatever was going to be on. Or if you didn't, you'd miss it. I mean, there were Uh, VHS players and recorders, but they were
1: expensive back in the seventies. They didn't become really widespread until the eighties. And we never had one actually. I, my first access to one wasn't until the fall of 87 when I lived with my sister, she'd had one for about a year. Yeah. In the seventies, we didn't, you missed it. You missed it. It might never come back on again.
0: Yeah, And so any of these that uh, we talk about that I've seen, I saw then and, and we didn't have our VCR till later. I do want to talk a little bit about the TV Guide fall preview issue because that was a big thing Richard alluded to. We had a subscription to TV Guide and it came later in the week but stores would have it on Monday so I can remember distinctly after school taking a long route home going by the quick shop getting the fall preview we we would have two issues then but then I could start going through it and and just figuring out what was going to be starting I still have a chunk of fall I, I had a whole tv guide collection which I sold many years ago but I kept the fall previews I don't have them with me but I'm I looked online and those covers are awful familiar. I think I have the actual fall previews for this, these years that we're talking about. It was the Bible. I mean, this was how you knew what was on. And side note, have you seen a TV guide lately? They're just horrible. Of course, it's, so, a, grid, it's a mile long and they do it so far in advance and things change. It's just not accurate. They've become a magazine because they had to out of
1: necessity. There's too many channels nowadays for them to to have all the, the various channels on there and they quit doing localized versions many, many years ago. So there's there's no your local affiliates or whatever. They just do the kind of generic grid and a <laughs> side side note, they are annoyingly persistent. I had a TV guide subscription until about four and a half years ago because I would read the articles, but it, it became really it was fluff and it was a waste of money. So I quit it. Do you know, I still get these, and, and they're so deceptive because I get these like envelopes and they won't say who they're from, but it looks like it's official. And I'm like, oh, it's probably junk mail, but I know if I don't open it, it could be that, you know, sweepstakes check. So I open it up and then it's like, don't forget, you can subscribe. Once again, we'll give you this great deal. It's like the renewal thing from TV Guide. And it, it's so annoying. And I kind of chuckles, like, they really are desperate. I mean, I don't even see them in, in stores anymore, to be honest. I, I think that it's just something that is outdated by today's world. Everyone uses the on-screen grid, and that's the up-to-date thing, because that's what you use to set your DVR. Back in the day, we didn't have that. And those, those fall guides, as you said, the fall season premiere, they were like three times, four times the size of a regular one. They were thick they gave you the info on all the shows. And I, I think it'd be fun to go back and look at some of those old ones. You need to dig them up and, and I'd love to d- dive them as well, because how many TV shows have been forgotten? I mean, you know, cause there were so many shows that, you know, this is starting Monday night at seven o'clock and after three episodes, it gets canceled and it's forgotten. Those shows don't pop up anywhere. The magic number for a show to be successful in syndication is 100 episodes. And if it's less than that, it became harder to sell in syndication because it'd be too repetitive if you were doing five days a week. Rare exceptions over the years, I mean, like Battlestar Galactica or Buck Rogers, those only had like one or two seasons. They were able to sell those because they were popular, but stations would generally put them on like once a week because they didn't have that many episodes. 100 is the magic number it used to be back in the day at least nowadays our viewing habits are vastly different i used to do the same thing i always we had a subscription to the false you know to tv guide and i always got angry that the stores got them a day or two early and i do remember occasionally buying one and having two copies and my mom would get on to me about that she (laughs) was like no you don't need to do that you know i was like yes i do you'd get that tv guide and You know, you would just go from cover to covers, like figuring out what's going to be on at what time. You know, are there any cool movies going to be on Saturday afternoon or what's going to be playing on the Friday night movie after the news? Because that's when I would see like Planet of the Apes or Beneath the Planet of the Apes. I'd occasionally see Dracula or Frankenstein would be on Fridays and Saturday nights on Channel 10
0: after the 10 o'clock news. That's when they played the best movie. And that's that, and that been, there was a, a conflict, you know, if there were two new shows you wanted to see. But back then, pretty much, you got a, a full repeat of a season after the, well, during the summer, I guess, late spring and summer, there yeah. would be pretty much repeat. I guess now you get a repeat now and then, well, I don't, yeah, like you say, today's have changed so much.
1: Yeah, like once the season was over, there'd occasionally be repeats during the season, like around the holidays and stuff. But... Right, Yeah, summer was, was, there were no new shows in the summer. It was all repeats. And that was your chance to to catch up. Because then come September, the new episodes rolled around. And then what you had seen that previous season, you would not see again until it popped up in syndication. If it popped up in syndication, and if your local station picked it up. Six Million Dollar Man, for example, was not played Locally in Wichita, after it aired, there were no stations that picked it up. But when we got cable, Channel 13 out of, out of Topeka and Channel 41 both played it five days a week in the afternoons. And I'd watch the heck out of it then. But then again, even those shows, sometimes they, they'd only stick around for two or three years in syndication. And then they'd be replaced by something new. Because, again, there was only a handful of stations in a market. And that's how they would keep things fresh. Um, some shows they would keep in their in their lineup, but other shows they would kind of end after so many years because they would get a new show that was coming into syndication. And that's, that's how they kind of continued to to keep things exciting. But it was hard to watch if you had a favorite. The only exception, I think, was Star Trek. TV station got Star Trek, and they never got rid of it. They They would play that five days a week because... It was hugely popular and people would tune in. And that's ratings was always the thing. That's what decided what they would get and what they wouldn't, what they'd keep and what they wouldn't keep. You may love it, but if most people didn't, then you probably weren't going to see it again until it came out on VHS many, many years later. And we didn't know that back then. So, like you said, heaven forbid mom and dad want to go out uh, and there's a movie happening. I, I remember dad taking us to some new lake or whatever on, on the uh, east side of Newton. And I could have cared less because Animal Crackers was going to be on CBS on a Saturday night. Never been on television before. I remember it was like, Dad, Dad, on. Okay, this is great. Yeah, nature. Marx Brothers are on TV. I remember begging and pleading and my dad getting so irritated, you know, but I had to get home to watch the Marx Brothers. And I was mad because I missed the first, you know,
0: half hour of it. You know, I, I didn't have access to it any other way. Well, let's dig into some specifics. Um, our first movie is from the seventy-one seventy-two TV season. I've got a few shows that premiered in this TV season, seventy-one seventy-two. I thought I would just list them off. I picked ones that I either remembered, or I, I have questions to ask you, or uh, just sounded. I don't know. Interesting to me. First of all, on NBC, they had the Jimmy Stewart show. I have discovered that only recently. I didn't know it back then. But Vincent Price was a guest star in one of those episodes. And I believe it just ran one season. That was a new show. Cop shows. Detectives were very popular. Canon premiered on CBS. Uh, Long Street on ABC. Uh, ABC also had Owen Marshall, counselor at law. NBC had the, the NBC mystery movie, which rotated Columbo, McLeod, McMillan and Wife. So all those like law, crime, fighting shows were very popular. Sanford and Son premiered on NBC, and it was one of only a couple new shows that made the top 10 that season. A favorite show of mine, The Sixth Sense, that premiered in 1971 on ABC. Emergency on NBC And then the new Dick Van Dyke show, which I know nothing about. I do not remember the new Dick Van Dyke show. (laughs) I've seen clips of it. It was, yeah, the bad Dick Van Dyke show is what it should have been called. Trying to recapture that glory from the original, and it it lacked the chemistry. And then the last one is one called Funny Face that was on CBS. It was the only other show that made the top ten. That was Sandy Duncan. And the next season it was retooled and became the Sandy Duncan show. I did not remember that, but once I started reading the history, I do remember Funny Face just vaguely. Anything there strike any memories for you? Um, Emergency. Obviously, that was a show
1: I I did enjoy a lot back in the day, and I remember when it went into syndication, it was called Emergency One, which was a thing that networks would do back then. If they put a show in syndication that was still on primetime, they had to differentiate the difference. So, like, the Andy Griffith Show became Andy of Mayberry. Gunsmoke became Marshall Dillon. Bonanza became Ponderosa. Hawaii Five-O became McGarrett. I mean, they would always kind of tweak, not all the time, but a lot of times. Happy Days became Happy Days again. They would have to change the title to help differentiate between one and the other. I, I do know a couple of shows that ended their run in early 1972. Bewitched and My Three Sons ended their runs early that year. I did not know, doing a little research, Agnes Moorhead was actually quite sick towards the end of that run mm-hmm. of uh, Bewitched. Can't remember what she had, but I don't know if it was on the Bewitched or if it was something that she did right after, but she was actually wheelchair-bound to uh, help her get around. So I did not know that. Anyway, one thing that was popular on, on uh, Saturday morning TV, and I know we won't kind of go into Saturday mornings too much, but American Bandstand was hugely popular. Yeah, I always talk about top songs of the day and stuff. not going to do that so much, but do you know that in January of 1972, Rockin' Robin by Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson was on, on American Bandstand. One of the few rare clips, actually, I guess this early 70s time period, there's not a lot of clips from American Bandstand. I guess some of the episodes are missing. They didn't save them, apparently, from this time period, or they're not widely available. It seemed like back in the day that Dick Clark had been around forever. But jumping ahead a little bit, that New Year's Eve in 1972, so the 72-73 season, was the first time we saw Dick Clark's rockin' New Year's Eve. Mm. I don't remember much from TV those days. I do remember Canon. My mom and dad used to love the crime drama shows. Canon, Harry O., Barnaby Jones, Streets of San Francisco. Yeah, any of those shows. And uh, I, so I love watching MeTV every once in a while. They play canon. It's like two o'clock in the
0: morning. I wish they play him a little bit more reasonable time. Let's take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we'll talk about our first movie, When Michael Calls. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. No grow apple trees and honeybees and honey snow white turtle, turtle doves. I'd like I to teach, teach the world to sing, sing with me.
1: Dirty rings. You try scrubbing them out and soaking them out, and you can still come out with. Ring around the collar! Now try whisk. Concentrated whisk goes right on the dirt. Its unique formula sinks in and starts to clean before you start to wash. Gets even permanent press collars really clean. Whisk around the collar beats ring around the collar every time.
0: Pretty shirt. Don't be scared. I'm the super sweet monster with the super sweet new cereal, Count Chocula. Beautiful. Here's the super sweet new cereal, Frankenberry. But I've got chocolate sweeties for monstrous chocolate flavor. Well, I've got berry flavored sweeties for monster strawberry flavor. Count Chocula. Frankenberry. Hi. Frankenberry. Count Chocula.
1: Tuesday Movie of the Week. Presenting an original motion picture produced especially for ABC. Tonight on Tuesday Movie of the Week. Ben Gazzara, Elizabeth Ashley, Michael's been dead for 15 years. Michael! Now he's back to avenge his mother's death.
0: What is this? ABC presents Tuesday Movie of the Week. Welcome back, everybody. Our first movie is When Michael Calls, and for some reason, this is the one TV horror movie from the 70s that I remember. And, you know, it may have been that the advertising was just so pervasive. I'm not sure, but it also could be the music that they used in the opening of the ABC Tuesday movie of the week. This aired February 5th, 1972. I distinctly remember the commercials wanting to watch it. This is one of those that I would have made sure if we were out eating or something, we got to get home to watch when Michael calls. I chose this one. That's why I wanted to do this. I probably haven't seen it since then. Before I, I tell you how it stood up, at least in my mind, Richard, any experience with this one? Or would you like to kind of give us a plot synopsis? I
1: have no experience with this one. This is I've been aware of it, but that's it. So this was a first-time experience for me. And, you know, you might have seen this under the title Shattered Silence. That's how it was also... It never played on television under that name, but you might, if anyone out there has seen the movie Shattered Silence, that is When Michael Calls. I don't know why they changed the name of it. I think When Michael Calls is significantly better, but Mm -hmm. one thing with these movies, most of these made-for-TV movies are are 75 minutes in length, designed to fit into a 90-minute time slot. Some of these films are now 90 minutes because they had extra footage added to them for theatrical releases over in Europe or for television broadcast years later in syndication. And this is a movie that it now only exists in a 90-minute format. I thought there was a 75-minute version on YouTube, and it, no, it was just missing the last 15 minutes. Uh, I watched the whole stupid thing and realized, oh, no, it's not. it's not a 75-minute version. It's pretty basic. You've got a, a couple... And I can't, how do they pronounce it? Was it Doremus? Doremus, yes. Never heard that name before in my life. No, and and never since. And there's a reason. Doremus and uh, Helen Connolly, they've gone through a separation or a divorce. Never really explains why, other than Helen was kind of wanting to live her own life. It seemed like maybe a bit of women's lib kind of playing into play at the time. Helen had two younger brothers, a mother who was mentally ill, she kind of had to play the mother figure. As the movie plays along, we find out that she had to eventually have her mother committed. The two brothers, younger brothers, one of them ends up dying, essentially. That's kind of where it comes into play. The The younger brother was, was Michael. She begins receiving these other uh, mysterious phone calls from michael it is a boy's voice that she says it it sounds like michael and of course michael's gone and and you get into a supernatural element because michael calls ahead of someone who is basically he's almost like giving a a uh, an idea that someone's going to pass michael's actually seen in the distance and fog enshrouded you know we we see a, a boy but of course all is not as it seems there is a, a twist that I didn't exactly under, I didn't see it coming. I knew there was a twist and I knew, I knew that, you know, there was a, a scene in the kitchen with, with brother Craig that there was some odd things that he was doing in the way he was acting. And it made me suspect, but I, I didn't see the twist coming. I, I maybe I'm just ignorant that way. Cause I know sometimes people see twists coming in the first five minutes uh, I didn't see it uh, until it was kind of revealed. And I, I thought that it played out well. I, th- I think that the 75-minute version probably went a little bit quicker. I don't know what they would have cut out other than maybe some of the buildup, maybe some of the extra scenes, not much action going on. Maybe that's where some of the, uh, the extra footage came into play. But I thought that even for a 90-minute movie, that it, was, uh, it had really good pacing. And uh, I don't think that it drug in any, any point of the film. I really enjoyed it uh, for a first time viewing. I thought it was a really well-done television movie. And honestly, uh, I thought the production values were, were high enough that I could have seen this playing in, in a movie theater. It had a great cast, which is one thing about these made-for-TV movies. Sometimes you got TV actors, but sometimes you got people that, of course, you and I would, would recognize because you have Ben Gazzara playing Doremus, uh, Elizabeth Ashley playing Helen. Both of them were was staple on television and in films in the 70s and 80s. Uh, Michael Douglas, young Michael Douglas here, listed as a special guest star, which is kind of odd because this was one of his early roles. And I was trying to, like, why did he get special guest star billing other than maybe Streets of San Francisco? But when did that debut? Did that debut in 71? No, 72. So this was pre- Streets of San Francisco. I don't know why he got special guest star billing. He had a role comparable to uh, Ellen and Doremus. I don't know. That one goes kind of puzzling. How he ranked? The maybe game
0: his heritage, just being a Douglas. Maybe.
1: Maybe. I mean, you know, a couple of years later,
0: I it. could see that he would get that
1: because you know, Streets of San Francisco became hugely popular. I really enjoyed this one. This was. Uh, I went in totally blind, other than uh, you know the clip of the. Little TV
0: trailer. Uh, I thought it was uh, incredibly well done. A couple points of clarification, if you don't mind. Helen was the aunt, and she did grow up with the, mm. the crazy mom and the two brothers, but she that's right of took care of them because when Michael calls, it's always Auntie. Yes. Auntie you're My right, Helen, some right. odd name. I always remembered, I thought it, in my memory, it was her son. It was the I didn't remember the couple was divorced I just knew that I thought that their dead son was calling and in a way that kind of would add more emotional heft to it your nephew if you're close sure you know him calling back but could you imagine a dead child calling back you know that that's always all these years what I thought it was and I also want to be clear it was 15 years ago that he died so If he was back, it would have to be supernatural because he would have aged 15 years and would no longer be a child. So there's kind of that to it. And you you do see the child in sort of these Gothic uh, settings, like you said, in in any way, a call from the dead is certainly a compelling plot point to build a movie. Oh, they were creepy calls.
1: Michael's voice and and always, it didn't sound normal. It, It sounded distressed. So you have this image of, of you know the spirit of a dead boy who's distressed and realizing that he's dead
0: and the panic. And the, I mean, I, that was incredibly well done, I thought. You mentioned the cast. So in a lot of these TV movies, even though you've got a great cast, they're somewhat of a cookie cutter character. I mean, they sort of, you know, it's the mother or if it's the father and they sort of behave in a standard way. I think some of these movies what sets them apart makes them a little better is the, is the performances of the actors and here they're just a little odd they don't quite fit that typical mold i mean Ben Gesera especially he's not your typical divorced father and you know Elizabeth Ashley her performance is just a little bit unusual i don't even know if it's something you'd notice something if you watch a lot of these you notice and so it's definitely different, and I think that contributes to some of these movies having a, a theatrical look and feel to them. Uh, a, a lot of them are just, you know, again, very typical. This was just a little atypical in some of the production, in some of the acting. I thought
1: that, that I, I, made it. I can
0: it. see that. Yeah, I, I, I picked
1: up on. I, I kind of thought that Ben Gazzara's character was, yeah, definitely not the stereotypical divorced dad. He was a little kind of rough in the beginning, you know, he drank a lot and I, I thought, well, maybe that's why they, they, you know, separated. And I kind of thought that Elizabeth, Ashley, I don't know. She didn't come across as a very strong lead. There was a measure of independence there, obviously, but, but not a, not a strong independence. Right. And it always kind of made me wonder was like, well, how did she even kind of get the courage to divorce him She doesn't really stand up. And of course, you know, immediately as things begin to happen, she leans on him very heavily. Definitely not a typical divorced couple, even by by early 70s standards. It
0: was it was definitely very different. And the twist that you mentioned, uh, this is one of those movies where, yes, it could be predictable, but the outcome is so good. It's the way you want it to go. And you're not really, sh- you have suspicions, but you're not really sure. And so you're sort of validated at the end, like, aha, I was right. Versus, oh, this is so predictable. I know what happens. But I will say it does a very good job with the red herrings. It leads you a certain way. And it you're almost so certain. And, and I was like, oh, I'm going to be really disappointed if this is it. And then it's not. So you're like, well, good. But there's a couple of those. And There's a one really simple plot point, I think, that keeps you from thinking it's who it's going to be. And then that's why you're still surprised. And I I don't know if we are are we going to spoil it or well, I can just say that the person that ends up being responsible for all of this is present during one of the calls. Therefore, you think, well, it can't be this person because we saw him pick up the phone and, and talk. It's very clever in that way, and I think it's really effective. It held up for me. I, I really enjoyed it. Maybe not quite like I remembered it, in the details, but it's, it's a good movie. I really I liked it.
1: Yeah, I don't want to do spoilers because I think this is one that is probably people might be aware of it. They might not be. And I have a feeling that there's a, a lot of these, at least some of these films that we're talking about, are going to be new to a lot of people. And so this is one that I I think we would both recommend people check out because, you know, made for TV movies. Yeah, there's some of them that are just rough, hard to recommend. Satan's School for Girls Thinking of You. (laughs) And others definitely. And One Michael Calls is one of those that I think I've heard talked about, but I've never really heard it reviewed per se. But I think it's something that's easily available that's a plus. And so let's let's not do the spoiler other than to say that I agree with the red herrings and and, and things do get explained, which is a plus because we don't always get that in main right. films. You do get that here. It is you get all the loose plot points are are explained and they're done well and it, there's none that's left you like, "Oh, come on." Maybe stretching things a little bit, but not not very much in this movie. This movie plays out. It, it's, it's very well done. And it might have to do with the fact that it's based on a novel. John Ferris wrote the original novel. You know, he was born in Jeff City, Missouri. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was kind of cool. He wrote The Fury. He also wrote a movie I've never heard of, or a book that became a movie. And I want to know more about this. Dear Dead Delilah with Agnes Moorhead. <laughs> and... She was written into a wheelchair because of her, of her bad health when she made the movie. I, wanted, I want to find that movie. Uh, was I, that a book
0: first or was that just a movie? I didn't see that it was based on a book. I thought, no, it was not a book. But he wrote the screenplay and actually directed the movie as well. Oh. Kind of interesting. He's kind of a jack of all trades. Yeah, I know John Ferris from The Fury. That's, uh, I, I love that movie. I figured you would, yeah and brian de palma directed it and i do actually remember reading that book before i saw the movie and the book was really good too you know psychic twins and government conspiracy and all that that we should do that sometime and that it's like fun. forgotten even i forget about that movie sometimes and then i know that's, that's funny, that.
1: what talk about well james bridges wrote the screenplay for when michael calls and he's got a few really good creds as well and that's one thing you're going to find as we talk about these writers and directors and the cast they've got credit. They've done other things, lots of TV stuff, but stuff that people are going to remember. James Bridges wrote Colossus the Forbin Project in 1970. That was a movie that played on, on television all the time back in the day. It doesn't get talked about much now. That one starred Eric Braden, if I remember correctly. That's a fun one. He also wrote The China Syndrome, Wow. Uh, which was uh, the end of the 1970s, a big theatrical film. Movies directed by Philip Leacock. Lots of TV cred there, too, which uh, I think enhances the the film because it, lots of TV work. Route 66, Secret Agent, Bonanza, Mod Squad, Gunsmoke, Dynasty, Falcon Crest. He also directed Baffled in 1972 with Leonard Nimoy. Oh. Uh, that's a really fun flick that was a pseudo pilot for a series that never happened, which a lot of these TV movies were kind of pilots for, for series that never took off. I think when you've got great writers and a great director, yeah, maybe lots of TV work, but they knew what they were doing. They knew how to to put out good product. I think that really comes into play of why this movie, it works. And, And as we mentioned, the cast Ben Gazzara, people probably don't know that name now, I remember him from Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze. And that movie is always playing on TV. He's the bad guy in that. He's in a movie called The Neptune Factor that I have on my DVR that I still have not seen. Can't tell you anything about the movie other than the the description, the sci-fi description caught my eye. And I recorded it off of, uh, I think, Fox Movie Channel. Now, Elizabeth Ashley, lots of TV work. If you were a fan of the TV show Evening Shade, she was in that. She was in the third TV movie of The Six Million Dollar Man called The Solid Gold Kidnapping in the fall of 73. Of course, Michael Douglas, he went on to do huge things. This was early on in his career. Did uh, 98 episodes of The Streets of San Francisco. Of course, Wall Street, Romancing the Stone, Fatal Attraction. And still going strong. Age 76, recently been an Ant-Man, Avengers Endgame, I don't know if we've seen the end of his character in the Marvel Universe. I know that he is going to voice a character in the What If animated Mm. series. I think that's still happening. Uh, I don't know. I haven't heard anything more about that in a while. And even some of the supporting cast have some interesting creds. You've got the Sheriff, Sheriff Washbrook. These names. Al Waxman, not a household name, but... I recognized him. He he was a character actor. He was in 125 episodes of Cagney and Lacey. He he was one of the voice actors in uh, Heavy Metal. Larry Reynolds played Doc Britton, who um, meets a a rather untimely death early on in the film. He was in some TV work, but War of the Worlds, the TV show, Friday the 13th, the TV show. He was in My Bloody Valentine in 1981. Great Mm -hmm. film. I love that film. Mm Mm-hmm. And Marion Waldman played Elsa Britton, only did six movies, but she's remembered as Mrs. Mack in Black Christmas, 1974. Oh. Yeah, and that's about all you need to know there. She's a great character. I'm surprised she only did six films. She died at a young age, died in uh, 1985 at the age of 60. But I think by that point, her acting career was already over. You've got a, a lot of well-known character actors, some well-known actors and actresses from the day, great behind-the-scenes people, kind of a perfect storm for a great film.
0: One thing I wanted to mention is the the murders. There, this Michael character is back for revenge for what happened to his mother, and it's got some kind of clever murders. You know, the bee, yeah, the bees in the bee shed or whatever that is, and then <laughs> that, that's a great. And no spoilers, but someone else, you know, at the, the fall festival or whatever, that death is kind of not the death itself, but the discovery of the body. It's, it is definitely a fall festival. Uh, <laughs> uh, but this, though, no, this is a good one. I, I loved it. it it's, uh, you know, one of my favorites in my memory and one of my favorites revisiting it.
1: I, I love this one. This was this was a fun flick. Good, I'm glad
0: you liked it and again
1: it's easy for people to find you can find the a decent 90 minute print on youtube absolutely free it was put out on dvd in 2005 under the title shattered silence it's out of print sells for about 25 bucks i can't testify if that's a good deal or not seems a little high priced for a movie of this era but i don't know i guess we pay 20 bucks for other films so Nonetheless, you can get it on YouTube. A lot of these TV movies, you can find. Some of them are harder. And uh, thankfully, this is one you can find. And it's a good print, I thought. That's how I watched it. Uh, And I thought it was was a a good print. Just watch the 90-minute version. Avoid the 75, because you're not going to get the ending. It just kind of stops. Why would somebody upload 75 minutes of something and then just stop? And why would they keep it on YouTube? To annoy me is what they did. They wasted 75 minutes of my
0: time. Nonetheless, check it out. Yep. So let's move later into the year, into fall of 1972. I've got my list here as well. You mentioned that you had information on 72 shows. Do you wanna go first this time? Yeah, I've got a few fun things. Daytime
1: TV, we haven't really talked about daytime TV. Daytime television, back in the day, there was a lot of game shows, there was a lot of soap operas, and primetime sitcoms would get replayed during the day. CBS would play MASH and All in the Family uh, later on in the 70s. Here's Lucy would be played, just thinking of some shows that I saw as a kid. And these weren't local stations picking up shows, these were actually being broadcast by the networks during the day. Price is Right. Probably the biggest game show of all, because I think it's the only one left on the air. It made its debut on September 4th, 1972. And it is still going strong here in 2020. Hasn't shot any new episodes since the pandemic started, because that's a show that needs audience participation. It would totally change the feel of the show if they didn't. So probably not going to be filming new episodes until next year, but it is still going strong Captain Kangaroo, we played weekday mornings before we got an overabundance of news. We could watch The Captain in the morning. And I remember watching Captain Kangaroo. Oh, yes. It aired its 5,000th episode in 1972. So I'm thinking, I, w- I would have watched it. I, I was at that point, I was not even five years old yet. And that show goes back to when I think my, my sisters were kids. And they're 15 years older than me. That show would eventually do 6,090 episodes. <laughs> That's just crazy. Another thing that debuted in the fall of 1972 was late night TV. Yeah, the Tonight Show, NBC, you know, was was hugely popular with that. CBS started the CBS Late Movie in the fall of 1972, five nights a week, initially airing movies. And then they would eventually throw in shows like Hawaii Five-O and Kolchak the Night Stalker had a highly successful run. That's really where its popularity grew. In uh, the very first week of the CBS late movie, this gives you an idea that they were digging into some cool archives. They played the anniversary, the Hammer film with Betty Davis, and they played the fearless vampire killers. And in its first month, they played Dracula Prince of Darkness with Christopher Lee. They would play a lot of Hammer films back in the day. Mm-hmm. so And sitcoms too. I mean, they, again, you'd see things like the Jeffersons would pop up on, on the CBS late movie. That continued, I think, until the early 90s before it got replaced, either late 80s or early 90s when they started doing the Pat Sajak show and tried getting into late night. And eventually, of course, David Letterman became huge. Yeah, back in the 70s and 80s, I remember watching the CBS Late movie. Uh, That was always uh, something, especially the the movies would always be. The Avengers and the new Avengers, they'd play those. And, you know, there's a lot of other made-for-TV movies were in full swing by this point. Movies that everyone talks about. Gargoyles was in 72. The Night Stalker was in 72. A movie that I've never heard anyone talk about. The People with William Shatner and Kim Darby reuniting from star trek have you ever seen the people i don't i don't know That's it's, sounding fine. it's not a great copy that i've seen out there and it's it's a sci-fi flick about these super intelligent kids william shatner plays the vet and and i don't even think he's the lead <laughs> and there was of course we did get some tv movies that were geared towards kids there there was man, there was a daffy duck and Porky Pig movie back in the day that played around this time period. Mad Mad Monsters from Rankin Bass was a prequel to the Mad Monster Party, which was a classic from about five years earlier. I know I didn't write it down, but around this time period, the after school special was also a big thing, which was late afternoon television. And it would preempt local programming, which always irritated me when the after school special came on, because if it preempted something that I wanted to watch, and I was like, wait a minute, I'm not watching my show today. It's the after-school special. I would usually watch the after-school special, but I would always be irritated that it was preempting my regular show. That's some of the stuff that I have. What new shows, I'm sure you have what, what shows were, were coming out in the fall of 72?
0: Yeah, yeah. So we mentioned Streets to San Francisco. That came out on ABC. Other cop sort of shows, The Rookies on ABC, Barnaby Jones on CBS, Banachek, on NBC. ABC also had Kung Fu. You mentioned a couple shows that aired, or at least you mentioned MASH. Well, MASH previewed in the fall of 72. And do you know, it was not in the top 10 or top 20 its first year. So that's a show that really grew in popularity over wow. its, yeah, I was surprised. And and shows, The Waltons that premiered in 72 and the Bob Newhart Show, those weren't top 10 shows at first. Now those did premiere top 20, and, of course, they'd eventually become top, top, top. But their first years, you know, were not the biggest hits. It took them some time to grow. It's kind of interesting because, like, MASH was based on a movie.
1: And so you mm-hmm. thought that it would have kind of a natural built-in audience. The Walton's was, of course, had been a movie the year before. It was uh, the Christmas story. Yeah, the Homecoming. Which was hugely successful. So you, it's kind of odd that that
0: they didn't build on that, you know, that success initially. Interesting. Now, Maude was a top 10 show, its first season, as was Bridget Loves Bernie. Do you remember Bridget Loves Bernie? I do not. No. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was on Maude CBS.
1: So Maude, Maude would have had some of the all-in-the-family crowd. because right. She was originated on that show. She You always forget about that. Maude was, what was she? Uh, Edith's cousin, I think. You talk about two... Polar opposite <laughs> characters, how they could be cousins is beyond me. And I remember some of those early Mod appearances. Mod versus Archie was,
0: he met his match when he met Mod. And then finally on NBC, Ghost Story. And am I correct? Did Sixth Sense morph into Ghost Story? Or were those two separate shows?
1: Uh, no, separate shows. Ghost okay. Story morphed into Circle of Fear.
0: Oh, okay. Gotcha. I knew there was something there.
1: Six Cents ended up being retooled and put into Night Gallery. Night Gallery. All right.
0: All right. So that's a seventy-two flipping through the fall preview TV guide. Let's take another commercial break and come back and talk about our second movie, The Devil's Daughter. Aren't you glad you used Dial? Dial picks you up and takes you. Everybody did. For viewing pleasure, it's a miniskirt. But for driving pleasure, it's Firestone's new mini sport tire for import cars. The tire that's styled for foreign cars, but engineered for American highways. Get the comer on performance. Firestone Mini Sport. Whether your bag is the country lane or the open road, you're ahead with Firestone. Available in sizes to fit almost all foreign cars. Buy the Mini Sport on easy terms and at many prices. Now at most Firestone dealers and stores. The biggest play of the game Post, coming can watch up. Watch it number five. Why, number I don't want to see the whole line. It. It's a whole new ball game.
1: And if you're still watching black and white TV, RCA can make it a whole new ball game with XL100. 100% solid
0: state AccuColor TV.
1: Over 40 models made with circuitry designed for extended life. Each chassis tube is replaced by tough, reliable, solid state devices. Color TV made to last. XL100 from RCA. Shelley Winters, Belinda J. Montgomery.
0: Are you still having your nightmares? How did you know about that? They've actually referred to me as the devil's daughter. Do you believe it? Mm. No. You are his daughter. You Satan. No, you you got the wrong person. It's a mistake. <laughs> leaving? What do you mean you're leaving?
1: And we are back. It is January 9th, 1973, ABC Television. And the Devil's Daughter. I was not aware of this film until we started talking about the this episode. And I, you know, we were like, oh, what movie should we do? And I, I just ran across something on YouTube, or we saw the name in a list, and I'm like, what is this? And then as soon as we we're like, Devil's Daughter, Satan, Shelley Winters, Jeff was like, sold, <laughs> we gotta do it. Totally going in blind on this movie. And what a fun flick again yeah maybe a little predictable but so much fun in this film and again i I think a lot of it has to do with the cast and with some of the the seasoned people behind the scenes that knew what to do and how to to make a a good flick and this is a movie that i guess had a little bit of life i mean it it, uh, i think it was on uh, the usa network back in the day But somewhere along the way, the movie's kind of slipped through the cracks and has kind of gotten, you know, it's been forgotten almost. I've just never heard anyone talk about this in recent years. And it's even available on DVD. Oddly enough, this is a movie that you would think would get talked about more.
0: You want me to do the, the brief synopsis a little I'll, I'll, I'll do it, I guess, to, okay. if we take turns. Yeah, and I do want to say, I, yeah, shame on me. I do not know why. There are multiple reasons I should have been aware of this movie. Uh, and did I, you even I, mention not- Jonathan Fred being in it, Dark Shadows? I mean, yeah, I don't know. And you say it's pretty – I mean, this is a very short synopsis. Yeah, I mean, the our, our lead, Diane Shaw, Belinda Montgomery, or Belinda J. Montgomery, is uh, – the devil's daughter, her mother made a deal with the devil years ago and she is coming of age and it is time for her to claim her throne as the the princess of evil. So it's about her awakening to that fact, uh, her learning about it when her mother dies and, and Shelley Winters playing Lilith Malone leads the coven, I suppose. And, and, and these people want to marry her off to the prince of, uh, <laughs> the Prince of Endor, uh, he's not an Ewok though. He, he is a, a, uh, a human being or a demon. I, when I first heard that, I was like, what is that? Did they say what I thought they did?
1: The little Ewoks are going to come, come bouncing in, you
0: know, and, uh, yeah. And of do yeah. a princess Leia. The whole question is, you know, is she going to escape this coven or is she going to meet her destiny and, and inherit the, the throne? The fun is the journey getting there. Yeah. Uh, it is a little more predictable than when Michael calls. I, well, I, I will say predictable, but not all the way throughout. It was more predictable at certain points. You kind of knew what was going to happen next. But again, so satisfying. That doesn't really matter. Yeah, I, I loved this movie. And it's like when Michael calls, it has that theatrical quality, the cast, the the people behind it all you know have movie involvement and, and it shows well I think right out of the gate the opening credits themed theatrical to me
1: because a lot of TV movies have kind of just you know that the title card is playing over scenes and you've got music that's just the way they were made this actually has imagery like you would get in a theatrical film first few seconds I'm like oh this is different and the music I think was was kind of spot on as well. Music is done by uh uh Lawrence Rosenthal, who theatrical films, TV work. He's known for theatrically for Rooster Cogborn and a little uh little uh, Ray Harryhausen flick called Clash of the Titans. <laughs> but he also did TV work, uh he did Logan's Run, he did the young Indiana Jones Chronicles, which is another series that's been kind of forgotten. Uh it really doesn't have a big presence out there. That kept the Indiana Jones mythos alive for a while. And he did the music for that. And he's still with us. He's 93, going strong, retired. That immediately sets the tone. And then you've got the church scene and uh a woman with you know, which is of course Alice Shaw as we would know, Diane Ladd, misspelled L A D. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, or maybe she did that. Maybe she was going through a phase of like, no, I, I'm lad, lad. <laughs> and She's got the rosary, and then of course we have Father McHugh comes along, and clearly sees that she's troubled, and shall I say it, Star Trek reference. Uh, we're going to have a couple in this film. No Doctor Who references that I found, so I, I'm sorry. Ian Wolfe is the actor who plays Father McHugh. He's a character actor. 304 credits to his name, busy actor, classic monster cred. He was in Mad Love, Return of Dr. X, The Invisible Man's Revenge, TV cred, shows like The Invaders and Night Gallery. And yes, he played Mr. Atos in the next to last episode of Star Trek All Our Yesterdays. He was the mad librarian who was trying to get Kirk Spock and McCoy off into the uh, Atavikron and, and sent them to the past. And he had multiple people. And, of course, Mr. Atos was a play on the library thing. It was A to Z. That's how they came up with his name. Anyway, I always loved seeing him pop up. because, like immediately, that's Mr. Atos. And Diane Ladd, of course, again, well-known now. Lots of TV work back in the day. Big Valley Ironside, Gunsmoke. But she was also entering her theatrical phase. Shortly after this, she was doing... Uh, or around this time period, she was doing Chinatown. She played Flo in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Right. And then she played the character of Belle Dupree on the Alice TV series. Uh, I had forgot that, that she played two different characters. Also in Something Wicked This Way Comes, people will recognize her though as being Grandma Nora in Christmas Vacation. <laughs> She's one of the 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 grandmas that that pops up. Doris Roberts and her, and she is part of our annual Christmas viewing, and everybody is, because Christmas Vacation is so hugely popular. Uh, she doesn't last long in the film, but she, she gets a, a very memorable death. Early on, two mysterious men visit her. She is clearly distressed. I guess, a s- spoiler, she's quietly laid to rest, <laughs> shall we say? Well, not so quietly, in uh, a rather interesting early twist because she's got a gun that she is shooting at this mysterious figure. And when she shoots it, she ends up shooting herself. We don't know who this mysterious figure is other than it's a uh, man with uh, black shoes and he's got crutches because he needs help walking. Why could he need help? walking? (laughs) Well, we will find out in the final moments of the movie, some 75 minutes later. And then of course, I mean, do you want me to keep going with the cast? I mean, I, I can, if, if you want her to. Well, I,
0: yeah, let's do. I, I want to talk about Lucille Benson. I know her, and I don't know how. And, and, you know, I look at her credits, and she's been in, you know, everything. But she's a very memorable character actress. Great character here, Janet Poole. Her sister, Margaret Poole, is an African-American. They have a cat that uh, Janet has a black cat, and Margaret has a white cat. Just yeah. an odd little touch, again, that puts... Oh. More into it than needs to be there, but I, I just love th- those two and and her Lucille Benson in particular in this movie. Do you know her from anything in particular, or just like me, sort of she's been everywhere. She's a character actress, yeah. She I've probably have seen her in countless other things.
1: She just kind of always pops up as a supporting character and has a unique quality to her that is like yeah, that, you know. got kind of, there's just certain character actors that. When you see it's like, okay, and they play the same character essentially. It's an extension, I think, probably of themselves. And that's why they get hired for these these great roles. And then character actors often get overlooked when it comes to praise, but everyone knows who they are and they always add a little extra something to the film that they're in, a little bit of credibility, I guess, when you see these, when you see a, a recognizable character, actor, actress. It almost like, oh, okay, elevates the movie a notch or two. It's like, oh, well, that movie's got so-and-so. So it's just a little bit better. And that's exactly why they're there.
0: Yeah, go ahead with the other cast. I mean, there's well, a big names you haven't even mentioned yet.
1: Yeah, so, we of course,
0: we have Lilith
1: Malone, a friend of Alice's from her past, and uh, that is played by the uh, wonderful Shelley Winters, who is, generally speaking, I think she's reserved in this movie but she has a couple moments where it's like you can imagine and
0: Shelley go full force and then she just snaps. Since you mentioned that my favorite scene in the movie is jumping ahead a little bit so Lilith invites uh, Diane to come live with them. She's not doesn't live in that city where her mother died and so you know she's thinking of moving there but she goes and stays with her but then you know the father uh, knows that's not a good idea and kind of encourages her to get a roommate so she meets uh, this girl and she's going to move in with her so they're talking and she says well I haven't told you know Lilith and her friends that I'm leaving I'm not sure how she'll take it instantly and this is editing and it's Shelly Winters but Shelly Winters jumps up into the screen and shouts leaving what do you mean you're leaving your mother would have wanted you to stay so that's an example I even it's hilarious, it's it's scary, oh, yeah. it's she goes perfect Shelly Winters, and it's just awesome. Yeah, she goes batshit crazy. I mean, she does, she, does. she just
1: like flips the switch, and she just goes nuts. It, it's classic. If you don't know who Shelly Winters is, please crawl out from underneath your rock. We've talked about her on the show before. What's the matter with Helen? Whoever slew Auntie Rue. We may talk about her again in the future if we do the Poseidon adventure, which I have a feeling you would like to do. And of course, Ma Parker from Batman, <laughs> one of the lesser villains, but nonetheless, Shelly Winters, incredibly well-known actress.
0: And uh, I want to say, and I apologize for keeping interrupting you, but we're talking about Shelly Winters. I have not mentioned, and I will later, but I've been doing a series on classichorrors.club with TV movies. I'm going chronologically. So I haven't gotten to any of these yet, but I did watch another one with Shelly Winters called Revenge. And that she did a series of TV movies at this time. And that is, that's an awesome movie. So check that out, Revenge. I believe from 71 uh, with, with Shelly Winters. Yeah, so I saw you, yeah. And, and this I, just sealed the deal for me. Like I, I've, <laughs> I've always loved Shelly Winters Poseidon Adventure. That's who I think of. We've talked about that before uh, slew Annie Rue, one of my favorites, you know, I've always kind of liked her, but for some reason, seeing her in this, it just clicked. And now I am all out. Shelly winner fan all the way. I want to see anything. I can that she's in. Yeah. She, she can be really entertaining. Now
1: it was a deal breaker for Carla. Cause Carla can't stand Shelly. Oh, Carla, which, you know, I, I get it because I, I didn't used to like Shelly either. She, she would annoy me. I think mostly it was because I would see her on late night t v and she was always just so loud and abrasive, and, and she was annoying I mean, but as the years have gone on, I've kind of grown to really appreciate some of her, her crazy performances and again, in this one she's, she is kind of reserved for for she definitely a is. chunk of the film. She has her moments, but she's always a little off, you know, but she's reserved, of course Diane Shaw played by, Melinda, by Belinda J. Montgomery. Well known for a variety of roles, lots of TV work. That's how I remember her from. She was in The Man from Atlantis, which I loved that show with Patrick Duffy. Only 15 episodes, but it, it got a comic book and, and you know it, it had some popularity and then it just disappeared. And then of course, Patrick Duffy went on to bigger and better fame as Bobby on Dallas. But she was also in, in Miami Vice. I did not realize that she was in Tron Legacy. I saw that as a credit, and I'm like, I, you know, those are a couple of movies I want to revisit, so I'll be looking for Belinda Montgomery. But she was good as Diane Shaw, kind of naive a little bit, but she gets a little braver, a little smarter as the film goes on. Mm-hmm. Sort of. There, there's a twist, which, again, we're going to avoid, because this is a movie I want people to see, so we're, we'll avoid that spoiler. Diane should have been smarter. She wasn't worldly enough to, to realize that she probably, she, she should have taken the, the cult as it were a little more
0: serious. And she probably should have thought a few things through. You're right, it's a mix because she at one point is clever enough to use the, the clout that they think she has to threaten them. But yet then she does become totally naive For me, it's like, so she finds
1: the book with the symbol. It is everywhere. It's in a picture of, like, Satan on the damn wall. And, oh, here's a ring. Wear this ring. And she starts having these strange, but yet she continues to wear the ring. Finds this book where they've been taking pictures of you all through the years, and yet you just, oh, I'll put the book back, and I'll just pretend everything's okay. I'm sorry if I'm at a person's house that I just met and I find a book with a strange symbol on it and pictures of me as a kid. I've seen enough movies to get the hell out (laughs) because it ain't going to end well. There was moments where she was smart and moments where I just kind of wanted to smack her. I'm like, what are you thinking? But she gave a really good performance. I I, I felt like she she really did well in that role. She eventually meets the character of Steve Stone, played by a uh, young Robert Foxworth well-known actor we've talked about him in Damien Omen 2 uh he was in movies like Ants and Astral Factor I'm sure you as I watched him in Falcon Crest as Gioberti what was his name was it Michael Gioberti or
0: no that was the you know Falcon Crest is one I did not watch (laughs) really yeah I figured
1: you would have watched it I yeah I watched
0: it both in primetime
1: and in syndication. I was in college in 86, 87, and Falcon Crest played, like, every afternoon at 3, and a bunch of us sophisticated college types got sucked into Falcon Crest.
0: Yes, yes. I don't know why I didn't. I watched Dynasty Dallas, not Landing, all that. I don't know why Falcon Crest didn't do it for me. He was
1: also in uh, Babylon 5, and, yes, Star Trek reference, he played a couple characters on Star Trek. He played the character of Admiral Layton in a couple of episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. If I remember correctly, a not so good Admiral. And he played a Vulcan, uh, Administrator Velas, in three episodes of Star Trek Enterprise from their uh, final season. And a great three-parter. That <laughs> really, really good. And in more recent years, he's become a voice actor. He played uh, Ratchet in the Transformers films which I think is kind of funny. But he plays a uh, mysterious character who kind of comes, you know, first off, he's dating Diane's roommate or goes out on a date, she mysteriously dies, and then she begins dating him. It's like, that's kind of creepy. But I guess it was only one date. In any case, they Diane and Steve, they fall in love. She meets Steve's mother, who is played by Martha Scott, well-known actress for classic films, Ten Commandments, Ben-Hur, She was in an episode, uh, several episodes of Dallas. She played Sue Ellen's mother. She also played Steve Austin's mother on The Six Million Dollar Man and uh, The Bionic Woman. I've seen her recently as we've been making our way through those shows. She plays the mother, and Diane is seeking the advice of a Judge Weatherby, who is kind of. Managing what her finances, because she's got an inheritance from her mysterious father, and he's coming to him for advice. And when it's time to get married, will you give me away, Judge? Well, of course I will. Judge Weatherby's played by Joseph Cotton, well-known actor, Soil and Green, Citizen Kane, Hitchcock film called Under Capricorn from 49, which I have not seen. From the Earth to the Moon. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Latitude zero. Many will remember him as Doctor Vesalius from the abominable Doctor Fibes. He mm-hmm. was also in City Beneath the Sea, Lady Frankenstein, The Hearse. So he's got some legit horror cred, certainly. Gosh, you know, I don't want to do this is a, where we, the spoiler territory. But there's a question that I want to pose to the universe that that totally gives it away, and I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off, but maybe offline you and I could talk okay. and maybe we'll talk about it in a future episode to pick up on this. There's a, there's a question I want to ask. Anyway, oh. let's just say there may be more to the judge than meets the eye. And and, and we can leave it at that. And of course, one other character I, I would be totally remiss if I didn't mention, uh, I think his name was, was Al- alkaline or Al- 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 alkaline or whatever. The great Abe Vagoda. <laughs> when your horror movie has Shelly Winters and Abe Vagoda in it, uh, you are putting yourself in a new category. Abe Vagoda, Tessio from The Godfather Parts 1 and 2. He was in the episode of The Bind Up Woman called Black Magic, which featured Vincent Price. I'll be watching that this coming week, as a matter of fact. We just wrapped up the $6 Million Dollar Man we're going to watch a few random episodes of the Bionic Woman before we dive into the reunion movies. So I will be seeing Abe Vigoda again this week. Channeling
0: he was a- Boris Karloff, by the way. I thought he sounded very much like Karloff. Oh, yes. Yes, very much so. Um, and I, I couldn't remember if he always did or if he was... that was part No, of the no.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, lots of other stuff. Lots of TV appearances. He was in the movie called The Stuff. But everyone probably remembers him. If they don't remember him for The Godfather... They remember him as Fish on Barney Miller in his own series. He got he spun off in his own series, which is never really any good, but 35 episodes. And, of course, modern people will, will remember the fact of that Abe Vigoda. There was a site out there. <laughs> is Abe Vigoda still alive? After some reports of his death, there had to be a website created to let people know that Abe Vigoda was still alive. We finally lost Abe Pagoda in 2016 at the age of 94. A character actor popped up in so many appearances over the years and doesn't have a huge role in this one, but it's memorable when we see him pop up and kissing the hand of Diane Shaw. And I don't know. If I was a woman and Abe Pagoda starts
0: <laughs> trying to kiss on my hand and, and – I'd be a little creeped out. So well, also since he's an expert in dance or something, you know. I mean <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yes, A Pagoda and Dancing. I've always I've always compared the two, obviously. There's a strong connection. <laughs> yeah. Um gosh, it's such a great cast on screen. He had great people behind. You got did,
0: did you not even mention? Have we not even mentioned Jonathan? Oh Fred? my god, I skipped over. Yeah, I was waiting to to throw that
1: back to you. Also so good segue. So Abe Vagoda was on what show? Oh, Dark Shadows. Exactly.
0: And who else was on Dark Shadows? Jonathan Frid. Okay, Jonathan Frid. He played a minor character you might not remember him called Barnabas Collins.
1: <laughs> so he plays Mr. Howard. He plays Lilith Malone's servant,
0: butler. No, 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 no. Her chauffeur and oh. companion.
1: Yes, chauffeur and companion. Unfortunately, mute, Mister
0: Howard. And uh, uh, you, you know, I I would argue, and you, Steve has a comment about this when we play his voicemail after this. But I think yes, he may be mute, and we're missing his voice. However, if you watch him with his eyes, and if oh yes, the I don't mean role like the character, but the the role in the story, the the, the plot point that he represents and his eyes, his movements, I think it's a very strong performance and he's very, very good in it. Uh, because he does have to express himself through his eyes and through his body movement. And he's fantastic in this.
1: Yeah, I I, I totally agree. I, I do it's like part of me is like, man, they couldn't give him one line. You know, <laughs> I felt it's like he, he I kept thinking of like Bella Lugosi at the end of his career, those roles he would not have one word to say. But the expressions of his eyes really is where he is, is able to do something with the role. I kind of wish though, that maybe he would have been able to speak maybe at the beginning of the film. And maybe once he started maybe trying to talk to Diane, cause clearly he wanted to protect her. Maybe then Lilith did something to make yes. him mute. And then he could have done the expression with his eyes, maybe, in the second half of the film. I, I wish they would have been able to do that. I would have liked Yeah, to- I
0: absolutely believe he did. He could speak at one point and he did something that they cast a spell or took away his voice. I was sort of thinking at the opposite. I don't remember what happened, but at one point I really thought, okay, I get his backstory. You know, this happened to him, but he's somehow going to be released at the end and we're going to hear him talk. Uh, but that would have been never cool happened. too. Yeah.
1: Great seeing him in the film. I think this was his first post-Dark Shadows television role. And he only had yeah, one but of the, again, cause it Dark Shadows ended in 71? And he only had one other film role after this, besides his little cameo in, in the Dark Shadows movie, the movie called Seizure in 74, which mm-hmm. I'm not familiar with. Yeah, Oliver yeah. Stone. Yeah, Oliver Stone's debut. Beyond that, Jonathan Fritt did keep busy. Didn't he do stage work and things mm-hmm. like that? Yeah. yeah. But as far as television, he was... Kind of done after this, really. Well, this was his last TV role. Seizure was, I think, a theatrical film. Yep. And then he kind of left the Hollywood realm and, and went a different route. Great seeing him pop in again, adding to an already interesting cast of, of familiar people and uh, a fun character, honestly. I was like, as we said, could have been uh, played a little differently, but he does a wonderful job with his facial expressions and his eyes. Yeah, actually, one of the, probably the better parts of the movie, I think. Small role, but well played and, and very well done.
0: How about uh, behind the, the scenes? We've got some heavy hitters there, too.
1: We talked about Lawrence Rosenthal and the music. So we've got written by Colin Higgins, who, interestingly enough, Colin Higgins didn't have a lot of cred, but, boy, what he did, memorable. Seven credits, officially, Harold and Maude is the movie that put him on the map. And he, I was reading how he, he wrote that basically while, I forget what job he had now, but he had some job where, I mean, he was basically scraping. He was on his last dollars. He was writing Harold modded and of course that becomes hugely successful. Other movies in the seventies, he did Silver Streak, Foul Play, which is a great Chevy Chase, Goldie Hawn film that kind of doesn't get remembered much today. 9 to 5, that Lily Do- that little Dolly Parton flick, you know, mm. that still gets talked about today. Maybe a little less so, but the best little whorehouse in Texas, Burt Reynolds and Dolly Parton. And then, uh, you know, it was like, well, what has he done lately? Well, sadly, we lost him in 1988. He died of AIDS at the age of 47. I guess really still kind of the early days of the AIDS uh, epidemic. Nowadays, he, he would certainly have survived. But back then, uh, we lost so many great people. He certainly had a very promising career ahead of him based on on some of the big movies that he had written. Sad that we lost him, but certainly well-remembered for the films that he did. The director, I, I'm going to... Do you know that how to
0: pronounce the name? I, I don't know if I do, but I know how I say it, and I enjoy saying it. I'm going to throw it to you, because I butcher names all the time on this show.
1: So... How would you name, how would you say the director's name? I would say Gino Shork. That sounds perfect. I'll go with that. Lots of cred here. 19 episodes of Night Gallery. He did the first episode of the $6 million man called Population Zero, which is a great episode that channels the Andromeda strain a little bit. If you remember that one, the townspeople all are are passed out and the police officer the, the motorcycle cop shows up in town and takes off his helmet and he ends up going crazy and crashing to the ground and it's it's the first time they the end scene where Steve Austin is like he's got the fence post and he's he's racing across the desert landscape to throw it at the truck that is sending out this sonic wave and you know Steve is like covering his ears and the heartbeat you know, you're not hearing the familiar sound effects. It's the heartbeat and the music. is ah. It's one of the best scenes in The Six Million Dollar Man. Again, great direction in that. Jaws 2, Somewhere in Time, Supergirl, TV shows like Heroes, Smallville, Fringe, Supernatural. Lots of, of, of incredible credit there. So many great people on screen, great people behind the scenes. Another perfect mix a perfect combination for
0: uh, a really really fun uh, really fun flick you mentioned night gallery a couple times the and you also mentioned the painting in this very much reminded me of night gallery and they really focus on that painting in a lot of shots and that's a cool painting it reminded me of night gallery this could have been and i suppose an extended episode of night gallery it could have yeah i mean it 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 did
1: have a a feel and some of the scenes in it, you know, which were a little bizarre, like the the party scene that turns into the dance and where they all then appeal to Diane as like, you're our empress or you know, and we're queen and whatever they called her. And that was that was just a really creepy but well done surreal,
0: dreamlike sequence. And that reminded me a lot of Rosemary's Baby, especially that yes. sort of a fisheye lens and Shelley and Abe are there and someone's wearing weird glasses and they're kind of crowding towards the campus.
1: somewhere in my mind. I imagine there's like a a gathering where Shelly and Abe and <laughs> Burgess <laughs> Meredith and, and Ruth Gordon are all hanging out talking about their, their good buddy, Satan, you know, that, that'd be a party <laughs> and a half to be at best way to see this is to get the DVD. It's on YouTube, but it's a rough print. I, I didn't think the print on YouTube is that, I think it's on like is it Q B or something else has got the movie, but it, again it's it's not a good quality. The DVD is 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 good quality. It's from CBS Home Video. It looks though like it could be uh, a bootleg, but it is an official video. I watched your copy of it. You thankfully sent it to me. I appreciate that greatly. How much did you pay for it? Me, I,
0: I saw it like it was like twenty five. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's that's what I saw. The going price was which seems again a little pricey for a 75 minute movie that has no extras although i don't know what you could what extras they probably had from a 75 minute tv movie but good quality dvd is the way to go i i, I didn't find it anywhere else on the internet don't watch the rough print spend 25 on the dvd or find a friend who has and borrow their copy i'd be happy to share it and, and send it to somebody if they want to see it Devil's Daughter, two thumbs up for me. I love the heck out of this one, and people need to discover it. It's a movie that doesn't get talked about, but should. It's fun. It's got a great twist ending that, again, you could kind of see coming. Still fun. Done really well. Again, very Night Gallery-esque. Yeah, that's a a good comparison. It really does seem like an extended episode, just the way things play out. Very well
0: done. All right, let's 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 listen to what Steve said about it real briefly. I hope I didn't spoil uh, all of it, but uh, he did take the time to leave comments, so let's let's hear it.
1: The Devil's Daughter I saw fairly recently, and uh, I was disappointed it didn't have more Jonathan Fritt in it, and disappointed that he, as I remember, he's mute in it, and John's voice was just a wonderful thing, and don't understand why they would do that. But uh, other than that, it's, it's actually quite a good TV Movie. There was uh, a lot of great TV movies in the seventies. It was really the golden
0: age of them, especially for horror movies. Thanks again, Steve, for that. Rich, I'm having some technical difficulties here. I, it, you know, you mentioned it's storming there. It's raining here as well. I think we're getting some interference with the antenna or something. I'm I'm trying to adjust it. You're kind oh, of buzzing yeah. out on me.
1: Maybe we need some tin foil around the rabbit ears. I think maybe yeah. might might help a little bit.
0: I need to check into this. I certainly hope we don't get cut off